2: It really was the Somme that made the um, made the Germans think for the first time that there was a chance that they were going to lose the war.
3: That was Andrew Roberts talking about the consequences of the Battle of the Somme.
4: Anti-unionism um, was a very strong component of popular support for. Jacobitism in Scotland in the early decades of the 18th century.
3: And that was Christopher Watley discussing the Jacobites. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine. Available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com Forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of September 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Andrew Roberts, a best-selling historian who's written on a variety of subjects, including the Second World War and Napoleon. His new book, Elegy, tells the story of the 1st of July, 1916 the day when the Battle of the Somme began. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, met up with Andrew recently and began by asking him why he'd chosen this topic for his book.
2: It's always difficult to know whether or not um, anniversaries are um, a, just a useful pig to hang ideas on, or whether or not they are something that's genuinely inspiring and moving. Um, And I think the anniversaries for the First World War have been more inspiring and moving than any other set of anniversaries that I've come across. The trouble with the bicentenary of Waterloo, although it's very grand, is it's 200 years ago. And so you never met anyone who fought in the First World War. Whereas I met plenty of people who uh, fought in the First World War. And so it, um, it does sort of hit you viscerally. It hits you in the gut in the way that that you know, the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta you know, can't and doesn't. Mm. Equally, the really recent ones um, ha- don't really have quite the same power to, to grab the imagination. A 50th anniversary or a 75th anniversary or a 30th anniversary, unless they're something to do with you personally, um, you know, your wedding anniversary or something like that actually historically I don't think have anything like the pull of 100 years. Mm-hmm. It's, those, it's those, you know, couple of round numbers there that really bring home the um, the thing to you and that's why I think the um, the poppies in the Tower of London moat the other day, um, some of the things that the Queen has uh, has gone to, certainly what they're getting ready for for the Somme anniversary at uh, Thiepval. Um, and Beaumont Hamel and some of the other um, ceremonies, I think, have a, uh, a real sort of ability to twist the gut.
5: And that's what's happened to me over this. Talking about the reasons why the Somme took place, um, to what extent was the decision to fight there a political rather than a tactical it was a, It was very highly political um, because we needed to help the French.
2: Um, at Verdun and stay in the war, which sounds like a strategic military decision, but actually um, the, the um, Somme was chosen because that was where the French and the British uh, armies overlapped and or at least um, were adjacent, stood uh, shoulder to shoulder. And so it would, be, it would come over as a very powerful propaganda uh, move if the two armies could coordinate a, uh, a, a big attack um, the, the biggest attack of the war that thus far,
5: and that was political. Um, talking about the high command, what problems were there in the run-up to the battle within high command? The
2: major problem, of course, was that um, the British Expeditionary Force, um, by then under under Haig from December nineteen fifteen onwards under under General Haig, um, was subordinate to General Joffre. And the uh, and the French understandably you know, so. In a way, you know, you're fighting in France, and the French have a much larger army than us. And the overall direction of the war really had to be theirs. Um, but the problem, psychological and um, and the uh, again political problem, rather, is that Joffre um, only really believed in attrition and, uh, and not a war of movement or, or big breakthroughs. And, uh, and Haig desperately wanted the big push to, um, to result in a, in a breakthrough um, and, uh, and have a much more fluid form of, um, of uh, warfare. And it wasn't until 1918, of course, those famous three last months of the war, that Haig got what he wanted. Otherwise, it was the Joffre view of warfare that, of course, um, triumphed and, uh, and as a result left as many dead as the as the First World War did, so so you've got that tension, um, which it ne- was never said in so many words, um, but we can see that that must have been a tension. The second tension, of course, was within the high command, um, because uh, Haig only came to in, into his position uh, in the December of nineteen fifteen after quite a lot of uh, of frankly um, rather ungentlemanly... Um, jockeying for, for, for the post um, and, uh, and that was all, always highly political you know I mean, generals are politicians um, at the top level anyway they always are in all wars and, um, and, uh, and Haig was actually a, a, probably a better politician than he was a general <laughs> um, because he got to the top and, and stayed there for the whole rest of the war regardless
5: of these, uh, of these massive losses mm. um, And how much was overconfidence a problem in terms of the planning of this operation? Very seriously, um,
2: uh, the, um, the problem—not—not not so much with Rawlinson. Rawlinson did feel that there was a, um, uh, a you know, a danger that um, that it wasn't going to come off. Um, but uh, but from his diaries, it seems clear that um, that Haig was wildly over-optimistic. and that's not entirely his fault. I mean, Charteris, his uh, intelligence officer, his chief intelligence officer did um, lead him to, to feel um, that, um, that you know the Somme was going to be a, a, a big victory instead of the worst day in the history of, um, of the British Army. And um, one can see why, you know, the, the sheer amount of ordnance that they were going to be dropping on the barbed wire and on the German dugouts should by any normal calculation of war have meant that it was a walkover and that the and that the men were going to be able to you know, slowly get out of their trenches and walk across no man's land and just take possession of the first couple of of uh, lines of German trenches possibly only actually having to fight for the third one um, and uh, and yet the um, uh, you know for, for various reasons that I give in the book, uh, dud shells, um, the fact that barbed wire is an awful lot hardier than it than it seems yeah. i mean there were it 's true that there were some places where the wire was cut, but overall, the men um, heavily weighed down with all their uh, equipment uh, instead came up against um, uncut wire in, mm-hmm. on, on all too many occasions and um, you know ultimately, the uh, intelligent people must um, must bear some uh, uh, blame for that, as must the um, the uh, Royal Artillery. Mm.
5: This has obviously been the subject of, of huge amounts of debate. Uh, what view do you think we should take of Hague?
2: Yes, it has been, and um, I... I'd love to be. Usually, I take very strong views um, uh, for or against people. You know, I've been attacked quite a lot for my pro pro Napoleon um, stance. I think I've been objective about Napoleon. A lot of people who've written in about my TV and radio shows don't (laughs) don't think that at all. Um, But um, but I I don't really come down on. I certainly don't come down on the he was a donkey. Line that uh, that Alan Clark and oh, What a Lovely War and um, and various other uh, people have uh, come up with. Equally, I think that um, that uh, although they're very fine historians, that several of the sort of apologists for Hague have, I think, gone a bit too far. Okay. Um, and um, uh, you know. He was in command of the army on the day that um, that the British took the largest number of casualties for the smallest amount of ground in the history of of warfare. Mm. So um, he must take some responsibility for uh, for that, um, regardless of whether or not he was fabulous in the last three months of the war. Yeah. Where I think he was good is, first of all, he was a modernizer. He was probably our most best educated. Um, uh, and you know, a highly intelligent man. Um, the idea of, of writing him off as some ignorant blimp is is, is monstrous uh, libel on him. Uh, and he learned from his mistakes, and um, and that was only because he was capable, and the army was capable of learning from the mistakes. That we did have those last
5: three months um, of, uh, of victory after victory. Um, going into the operation, to what extent was it widely known what form it was going to take, what was going to happen? Um,
2: everyone knew there was going to be a big push in the um, in the summer of um, nineteen sixteen, and everyone knew that it was going to be on the Somme, and this was one of the major problems with the um, with the whole operation. Um, it was common knowledge in all the pubs in Britain, um, and uh, even even newspapers referred elliptically to you know the the big push. Um, So, uh, you know, the Germans knew perfectly well that what was about to happen, Prince Ruprecht of uh, Bavaria, the German commander of the 6th Army, was, um, was, was fully apprised. ...of um, uh, everything, the, the only question was when. And then when we open up with a week-long barrage... ...you're effectively telling the Germans when as well as everything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. But the question is, if the barrage can, um, can uh, destroy the German dugouts... ...in the first and second line of trenches... ...well it doesn't matter whether they know mm. it's coming or not. Mm. Um, because, um, uh, because it will be so successful. But the problem was their dugouts were so much better than ours, so much deeper... Their um, the speed with which they could uh, win what was called the race to the parapet, and get their machine gunners um, ready to uh, to to mow down the um, the B F infantry was um, not hampered by. The, um, the, the artillery barrage.
5: And the shells didn't work?
2: About, well, I saw Dan Snow's show the other day, very good, I thought, um, show on the Battle of the Somme, and he puts it at a quarter of the shells not going off. I've seen some, um, some historians argue that as many as a third were dud. Yeah. And, um, and there have been various conspiracy theories about this, of course, because you know, um, uh, we were buying a lot from America. At the time and uh, and whether or not uh, there was um, actual sabotage going on in the American munitions factories with german um, uh, German Americans working in them i don 't personally give very much uh, credence to that kind of thing. No, I think it was just that the War Office ordered up um, the maximum amount of shells with a minimum amount of time, and as a result you got um, uh, you, you, you know you just got people. Cutting corners and and create, selling things that uh, ultimately didn't work, mm. but I'd wonder whether or not there was also something a bit deeper than that as well. Even if the, all the shells had gone off, you know, um, it takes it takes more than a than, than fire to cut barbed wire, um, and um, we didn't have the uh, the knowledge about. The Creeping Barrage, for example, until much later on in the Battle of the Somme. And remember, this book of mine really is um, only about that single one day. I, in one chapter, take the reader on to what happened on the 15th of September and all the way through to November. But this is not a book about the Battle of the Somme. It's about the 1st of July,
5: 1916. Mm. Um, talking about that day, is it how, how unfair is it to see the people who fought on the British side as being somehow, uh, you know, um, like, hugely inexperienced and naive. Is that a, a misguided view? of?
2: I think it is misguided. I mean, they hadn't seen action before, a lot of them. Uh, not by any means all of them. I mean, lots of them had actually seen a- action in Gallipoli mm. and, and and had come back, 27th uh, Division, for example. Sorry, 29th Division, for example. But, um, you know, these guys had been, um, most of them, uh, volunteering in the... Autumn of nineteen fourteen, and so um, and so they had been um, they'd had eighteen months um, training for this. You know, Um, they were at the peak of their of their training they were pretty fit and uh, and healthy um they some of them had eaten better food than they had ever eaten in their lives before you know um which is which is astonishing but you know the british army did manage to give three hot square meals a day to soldiers who many of them especially from working class backgrounds had been pretty much undernourished uh in their lives up until then um and uh, so i think it's um it's it, it's true to say that this was their baptism baptism of fire, but nonetheless, um they performed just as well as men who had seen action for, for years.
5: Mm. Do we get a sense of what it was like in the trenches waiting for fighting to start?
2: Yes, luckily, um this is a very literate um generation, especially the officers. And um and you know you you can easily go well beyond the famous poetry to uh, to read the Imperial War Museum, for example, has got uh, some wonderful letters, many of them unpublished. In fact, most of them unpublished. Um, and uh, and I've managed to get some uh, some superb um, testimonials from people in the uh, sorry testimony from people in the um, uh, in the trenches about what it was like, mm. and. Um, Actually, in a way, the although it sounds awful to say it, the um, the song wasn't anything like so bad as uh, as Passchendaele, for example, because there wasn't mud. It was the first of July. It was a it was a, you know it was a hot day, and it had been for, uh, for for much of that summer, and so it wasn't one of those classic. First World War battles, where people are up to the top of their puttees in the most glu- glutinous, you um, know, mud, which must mm. have been absolutely horrific yeah. trying to cross ground under those circumstances with the duck boards and the and the and the you know water and the rats and all the rest of it. And then they had much more of a problem with mayflies and
5: mosquitoes and. Mm. Uh, and midges, mm. and the sun shining on the biscuit tins on their back. Terrible story. I oh,
2: know. Terrible story again. Yes, the biscuit tins which they cut out these triangles to sew onto their back, so that the forward observation officers for the artillery could see uh, where they were, um, uh, where they were, and uh, and the, and order the barrage. Um, as a result, and of course, what it meant when the men actually had to try and get back to their own trenches. Uh, it also glinted off their backs for the German machine gunners.
5: Mm. Um, for people who might not know, what was the terrain like that this all took place in? What was the landscape like?
2: Um, undulating grasslands, um, chalk, uh, and you saw the chalk when the mines exploded. The um, uh, the chalk came down and took minutes to to came down and covered everybody in a in a sort of white uh, chalky substance. Um, this, of course, was. Um, uh yes it was it was chalk tra- tri- it's the same it's the same um geographical um, uh, geographical fault line as you get in the south downs okay. um you know it goes right the way under the channel and, and and across so uh so if you think south Downs, then
5: you've got a good um idea of picardy mm. um so all the bombardment had taken place um the order was given for the men to start advancing, yeah, which they did really slowly. Um, yeah. Do we get a sense of what the Germans made of? Uh, yes, yeah, the Germans were
2: shocked. Mm. Um, the, the, they couldn't believe their eyes because these guys um, weren't... It's very important not to generalise too much. You know, there were battalions that, that crept out before the um, the whistles blew at seven thirty a.m., and there were battalions that ran for it, you know, ran for the German trenches. And so um, one can't make an o- a sweeping over uh, over um, arching statement. But in the main, the men were ordered to advance at the walking pace, because they didn't want to be exhausted. To have the men exhausted when they captured the first couple of lines of trenches, and one can understand if you're carrying. Uh, what was averaging about sixty pounds uh, on your shoulders, and um, you know uh, your own kit, but also rolls of barbed wire, sometimes Lewis guns, sometimes Bangalore torpedoes, sometimes um, the um, uh, stretchers and and the rest of it. You know, if you're if you're carrying all that kit on top of the kit that you carry normally, which was also pretty um, pretty heavy, including water, which of course is most cumbersome thing to carry anyhow um, then to try and do it even at a trot would leave the men completely breathless um, by the time they uh, they got across no man's land so in a sense the walking did make sense um, it was just that um, you know, they should have had it organised in such a way that some of the equipment came up after the trenches were captured rather than at the same time. But they did believe that the that the Germans were going to be surrendering
5: mm. and not firing back. To what extent was a problem the multiplicity of targets, something that hadn't been... A huge committed. problem, a huge problem, yes. Um, the
2: fact is that they were attacking over a very, very wide um, um, so 22 miles if you take into account the french as well um a uh, really m- massive attack um and um and there was you know a division that wasn't used at all uh, so an area where the germans knew they weren't going to be attacked so they were able to um to um uh, send troops away from that and um, there was a, a diversionary attack on Goncourt, which uh, Led to huge numbers of lives. I mean, you can't tell people that they're fighting in a diversionary attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's impossible to do that um, for morale reasons. But nonetheless, you know, these guys. Um, it, it, it doesn't seem that they actually diverted anything from the uh, from the Germans. Um, the it it, it um, surely would have been better to have um, to have gone on uh, to have attacked on a. Um, on a less extended front, considering we just didn't have the number. We we had an extraordinary number of of, uh, artillery pieces and uh, shells, you know, 1.6 million shells were expended in the preliminary bombardment and on the day itself. Mm. But nonetheless, as we've mentioned earlier, it just simply wasn't enough. Um, Which part of the attacking force made the most gains? The French, Mm. uh, down in the south. In fact, it's quite interesting, the more you look at that... um, at that battle, the further south you go, the better they did. Right at the top, um, in the uh, in the in the northern region, um, and in the centre, really, um, they got pretty much nowhere. Whereas further on down, when you get to the thirty sixth um, the Division, and uh, and certainly the the French, you know, they captured Mametz and uh, and various other um, uh, small uh, villages. But these are tiny little picardy villages they're not much different now actually from they, from from the size that they were in uh, in 1916 and um, it uh, you know none of them had any great uh, strategic uh, importance certainly not with regard to uh, to the losses incurred in mm-hmm. capturing them and what effect
5: did this single day have on you know the psychology of of, of, of the attacking forces and, and the army more generally.
2: Well, it's, mo- it's much more... It's fascinating that it didn't break the morale of the, of the army. You know, you nearly have 50% casualties, uh, which is an unbelievably large number for any uh, engagement at any stage in, in history. And yet... You know, it's a testament, really, to the to the sort of cheerfulness of the uh, of the British fighting man, who was the British working man, effectively. You know, I mean, these these guys had um, had come straight from their from their farms and offices and uh, and factories, and um, volunteered, and yet even a an attrition rate of fifty uh, percent was not enough to make them. Um, you know, to break their morale in the way that, of course, the F- French, um, the following year, mutinied, the entire Russian army mutinied, and in 1918, the German army mutinied. But there was no question of that happening. You know, these, these guys in the BEF continued to fight and then went on and um, and launched other major offensives only a couple of months later, in the 15th of September, being a classic example of that. So um, it's uh, it's... Just as I said that the the to the bravery they showed was uh, was um, is is very moving. I also think the the sheer doggedness um, and, uh, and willingness to uh, to carry on fighting in circumstances where certainly month upon month upon month you'll I mean you know, to survive from the beginning to the end of the Battle of the Somme um, when almost certain death faced you. Uh, on a daily basis, just is something that almost defies belief.
5: Mm. And how did it change the Germans' view of the British?
2: Uh, well, of course, um, at the beginning, they, um, they thought we were mad to have, have walked over no man's land carrying 60 pounds of, um, of equipment and you know, getting no more than a few yards and being cut down. Um, but by the time that the, that the battle ended in November... And it was ultimately, insofar as you can say this, of any, of any kind of engagement where quite so many men have died, it was a British victory. I mean, it pushed the Germans back to the Hindenburg Line. Um, the, the, um, uh, their respect for us as a, as a fighting nation went up hugely because mm-hmm. we hadn't done terribly well in 1914, 1915. And so, um, it, but it really was the Somme that made the, um, made the Germans think for the first time that there was a chance that they were going to lose the war. Mm.
5: Is it right to see the slaughter as unavoidable, do you think?
2: No. Um, I mean, it's important that, that we retain the offensive and the initiative. You can't just fight the First World War by stopping and hoping that the other side are going to, uh, are going to you know, fall to, their, um, to your machine guns. Mm. I mean, you, 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 you don't win wars by, by not going forward. But um, and it's also really true to remember, um, and in many ways, it's ultimately the most important lesson of the song. Is that the is that the high command and the general staff did, and the officers, you know, and junior officers did learn the lessons, uh, and you know, you do get the creeping barrage, and you get com- um, infantry tactics completely altering, and uh, and uh, so so in that sense, the song did lead ultimately to the victory two years later but was the was that level of of blood loss necessary is that what you're asking well the answer has to be no mm-hmm. i mean they, you can't one can never say that that the death on one day of 19 over 19,000 people was necessary um especially for so little um ground gained
5: yeah yeah um what are the consolations uh, from this single day, then? Do you think, are there anything that we can take?
2: Yes, I think, first of all, the, the, the stories of heroism, the um, the immense um, courage shown by ordinary people um, in extraordinary circumstances. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is the um, uh, fact that, as I mentioned, the, the um, lessons are learned. And uh, you have, by 1918, certainly, a far... Uh, more efficient um, tougher um, army which is uh, is ready to um, to break the german uh, army and so uh, so that's a positive i think um but the, really that's that's all you can uh, take away otherwise it is a it is a truly truly terrible story of uh, of um, uh, massacre
5: mm. but
2: which forced the
5: british army to learn how to and when the first order I suppose yes
2: exactly it, you, you do see um, I, I devote a chapter to this called lessons learned you do see um, the way that um, infantry tra- tactics alter the way that the artillery um, uh, uses this creeping barrage which allows the infantry to move up um, and uh, and win the race to the parapet um, and you you get a, a much less you know men are allowed to Run to charge uh, they aren 't um, in later battles um, forced to carry sixty pounds of, of weight you know these are these are important lessons i mean you would you, some people can say and have said well you should have learnt them when you were training rather than um but they learnt that artillery wouldn't always cut uh, the the um barbed wire, and they also brought in f- different fuses and different shells. Um, and you get far fewer dud shells as well later on in the uh, in the war, F- better fuses and better shells, which actually can cut um, cut wire yeah. so um, you you have the invention of the tank of course, because the this barbed wire is such a serious um, thing. well, the tank just goes straight over barbed wire and and um, uh, and trenches. Mm-hmm. Um, aircraft reconnaissance is used to a much greater degree and uh, allows us to spot where artillery needs to be, um, concentrated on, and that's a positive, uh, you know, it was, um, it was a steep learning curve for the, uh, for the British Army, but they did learn, and they learned better than the German Army, and much better than the American Army, actually, which came over, even though it en- entered the war, you know, three years after the war had been declared, um, it, um it took a, a lot of um, pain on their part for them to
5: learn the lessons that had already been learnt mm. by the BEF. Um, and finally, how would you like this book to change people's views on this one day uh, in history, I suppose? Well, I, I mean, in a way, I'd
2: like them... Anyone who still believes in the Donkeys theory, this sort of chateau generalship of, um, of upper-class twits who... Who didn't care about their men's um, their men being slaughtered uh, and um, fighting miles behind the lines and and um, and doing it in a moronic way? I I hope that that actually the the sort of um, uh, blackadder view of the of the First World War, um, I think um, really I hope this book uh, puts an end to that. Equally. Um, the, the sort of revisionist lot who, um, who uh, make Haig out to be um, better than he was, I think they, they uh, have gone too far now. So what I'd like this book to do is to um, really present a much more rational uh, and, in my view, much more believable um, view than either of those two extremes.
3: That was Andrew Roberts. Elegy, the first day on the Somme, is out now in the UK, published by Head of Zeus. In the US, it is due to be published next month, also by Head of Zeus. And you can read more from Andrew and Matt in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's issue, there are articles on the First empress of Rome, the Battle of Agincourt, Alan Turing and Interwar Europe, among other things. You can get hold of our October issue in all good newsagents and digitally. And once again for this month, we're continuing our service of providing audio versions of some of the articles. You can listen to these on our iPad and iPhone editions, and also online at historyextra.com forward slash October audio. Meanwhile... Here's a reminder that our autumn history weekends are almost upon us. Our event in York begins next week on the 25th of September, while our Malmesbury weekend takes place from the 15th to 18th of October. There are still tickets available to some of the talks at both weekends, so if you would like to come along, it's not too late. Visit historyweekend.com for more details and to purchase tickets.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: This year sees a 300th anniversary of the 1715 Jacobite Uprising one of the most dramatic moments in a lengthy battle between the British state and those who wanted to put the House of Stuart back on the throne. To discover more about the story, our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Professor Christopher Whatley.
0: To start off with, who, who actually were the Jacobites and what, what did they actually want to achieve?
4: Right, well, the Jacobites were the followers or supporters of uh, the... Stuart the may the Stuarts who had been who in the form of James the 7th of Scotland James the 2nd of England had lost their crowns in in England and Scotland um at the time of the so-called glorious revolution of uh, of 1688 uh, early 1689 so they were the the jacobites were the supporters of this um this uh, this dynasty um which had lost its place um when william uh, and his wife Mary uh, succeeded to the the British thrones, if you like, in in sixteen eighty eight. Uh, what did they want to do? Well, the, 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 well, you've got to distinguish, I think, between the the, the male the Stuarts themselves and what they wanted, and what their supporters wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes there's an overlap, uh, but not al- always. It's not always the case. Obviously, the, the James the Seventh, and then his Son and his grandson—that's James, his son—and then Charles Edward Stuart, the so-called Young Pretender, Bonnie Prince Charlie. They wanted to regain their British, um, you know, the British Kingdom, if you like, or British kingdoms, or they they wanted to to become monarchs again. Why they wanted it was because they believed that they certainly in Scotland they believed they uh, there was an unbroken line of. Stuart monarchs going back perhaps a couple of thousand years that was that was almost certainly not quite the case but certainly uh for many centuries Stuarts had had reigned on the Scottish um throne uh different in England of course because James the uh James II had succeeded in 1603 uh, but but that was formerly, of course, the, there was a series of English monarchs, which you will know much more about than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, in Scotland, the the supporters of James and then his uh, his, his son and then body Prince Charlie wanted a, a change of religion because at the glory at time of the Glorious Revolution in Scotland, um, the Episcopalians. Had been replaced by the Presbyterians, um, the, the Church of Scotland, the, the, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland had been re-established in 1690. Yet under the uh, under the, the later Stuarts, after Cromwell, uh, Episcopalian had been the the state religion, if you like. In Scotland, um, there's a distinction between Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism. Both are Protestant, but Episcopalianism uh, it involves uh, bishops and 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 um, and, and more kind of uh, and practices which the Presbyterians uh, had no time for. So there's religion about. It's about religion in Ireland. Catholic, oh dear. In Ireland, Jacobites wanted um, the restoration of Catholicism. Porters there tended to be Roman Catholic, um, not exclusively, but tended to be Roman Catholic. Whereas in Scotland, there were very few Roman Catholics anyway. Um, uh, but so, so the, the bulk of support for Jacobites in Scotland was coming from Episcopalians. South of the border in England, um, most of the support for um, the Jacobites was coming from from, uh, from a different direction. Now, if you talk about the supporters of the Jacobites, there's a whole variety of factors, and, and what they wanted will differ in the three kingdoms. Now, what I'm going to focus on is Scotland, which is which is what I know best, mm-hmm. um, and what the what the supporters of the jacobites in Scotland wanted was a, a restoration of the stuart dynasty they wanted by and large a restoration of episcopalianism but there was something else and it's enormously important in Scotland and that is they saw the return of the stuarts as a uh, as a means of breaking the union of 1707 so in other words um in Scotland, there was a, it was what you might call a nationalist tinge, um, and some historians would put it more strongly than that. There's certainly a nationalist dimension to the support there was for the Jacobites because um, James um, Stuart and indeed uh, Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, both um, committed to breaking the Union of 1707 um, if they were you know uh, return to their thrones.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And the union of 1707 in Scotland was um certainly in the first decades after 1707 enormously unpopular for a variety of reasons. And so while you could even argue, you could argue that you know Charles James and then his son Charles Edward Stuart were not hugely popular were pretty popular, but not hugely popular. Less less popular was the Union of 1707. And so anti-unionism was a very strong component of popular support for Jacobitism in Scotland in the early decades of the 18th century. Some historians of Jacobitism, including Alan McInnes, have been arguing that what Jacobitism was was a movement rather than a series of episodes, and so that behind the scenes, behind these uh, military um, uh, military adventures of, or whatever you want to call them, these 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 attempts to restore um, the Stuarts by, by by the use of force, behind that there is there is a a, a movement. Um, there are there are there are networks across Europe of 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 Jacobites um which, which manifests which manifest themselves in a variety of, of ways, so Jacobinism begins almost the, the day that the, mm-hmm. the, 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 that James loses his British uh, thrones, uh, and it carries on um uh, behind the scenes, often, but often but, but periodically in a military sense, right through to the middle of the eighteenth century. Who led these people? You know who. Well, there were there were um, people <laughs> in all of the in, the in the three kingdoms who were consistent supporters of the Jacobites. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, as indeed there were people on the other side, the anti-Jacobites, who were consistently anti-Jacobite. But what you what what tended to be the case was that the different periods of, of um, physical forced Jacobitism, if you like, were led by different individuals. So, for example, in the period immediately after James the Seventh and Second lost his thrones, the the, the main leader um, in Scotland was was uh, Graham of Claverhouse, Bonnie Dundee, better known as uh, he was he was a great military leader, but unfortunately, was killed um, at the Battle of Killycrankie, which uh, and. and as a result of that, or partly as a result of that, perhaps even largely as a result of that, that, that Jacobite um, attempt, if you like, failed. In 1714, um, fourteen, fifteen, the leader of the Jacobite movement in, in, in Scotland was the Earl of Mar. Uh, he was again not the best, well, he, he well, I shouldn't should have said again, he was not the, 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 the most prudent Wisest, uh, most capable military leader, and it's argued too then that, that, that the movement failed when, uh, as a result of his leadership, there were other uh, attempts in seventeen nineteen seventeen forty five, and they were they were led if you like by by others.
0: James Francis of Stuart himself. Did he you know? Did he sort of? have an active role in leading the movement
4: yes and no uh, james um who the, the original james the seventh and second he was certainly very active um mm-hmm. in the field if you like as well in, in ireland um in terms of uh 17 uh, 14, 15, james that's his son didn't arrive in scotland until after the after the the rising had begun Mm-hmm. Although obviously he knew about it, but he didn't arrive until after the, the action began. Um, and in 1745, Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, was there um, more or less from, from, from the outset. They were always obviously in in, in the loop and, and, and committed, but, but they didn't, um, until 1745-46, didn't take a a leading role in terms of the military campaigns. Um, each time, there were a set of men, officers who like who 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 led the military aspect of these campaigns, and each each one of these uh, events is different. So yeah, you know, yeah. I know you'd like well, not you because I know you take this seriously, <laughs> but a lot of people <laughs> like this to all to be very simple. But in fact, each of the each of the so called risings is or attempts mm-hmm. uh, at regaining the throne it, it, it has a different character um so for example seventeen hundred and eight which is one we haven't we've mentioned but but um we haven't said much about that was um that was uh, well, in part inspired by uh, a, a spy in scotland who who um made it clear to the french that um, the union was enormously unpopular and that uh and, and, and was convinced that the, the the scots would rise um if the french supported um the uh, uh, supported an invasion Louis the Fourteenth, who was the French king at the time um, was not uninterested in what was going on in britain mm-hmm. um because of course the last thing that Louis the Fourteenth wanted was a union of England and Scotland, which had happened the previous year in seventeen hundred and seven so that was um that was uh the seventeen hundred and eight attempt invasion in- invasion attempt was um was was very much French um French inspired although um the French commander um, of the fleet wasn't hugely enthusiastic about his mission and that was one of the reasons that that didn't succeed when in fact 1708 um had the French forces forces landed it is argued and certainly by Daniel Secchi that that could have been uh, a, a success for the Jacobites because the union had only been, you know, forged or or, or forced through the Scottish Parliament uh, twelve months previously, uh, and and as I say, it was enormously unpopular at this particular time. Mm. And with the Jacobites uh, uh, assuring Scots that they would be overturning the union, the, 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 you know, you can see why there would be such popular support for them. Mm.
0: What about Bonnie Prince Charlie? I mean, he, people seem to have lots of different opinions about him. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, w- what was his role, and I mean, how how useful was he, to, you know, to the cause? Did he sort of help or, or hinder it? Would you say?
4: Well, he. Um, well, that's an interesting question: help or hinder? Well, <laughs> obviously, he helped it in the sense that he had to be there. Yeah. The, yeah. But, um, um, he was certainly a very uh, it appears to have been. I. Uh, Charismatic character, uh, and whether or not he was charismatic, he certainly managed to. Um, when, when he did did um, come to Britain, Scotland um, for the for the seventeen forty five, if you like, um, he did turn out the crowds, um, particularly particularly women. It has to be said, um, who who cheered him in the in the streets of <laughs> Edinburgh and Glasgow and so on and so forth. Um, you know he was the, he was the figurehead and and he was an attractive uh, relatively young man at the time and um said many of the right things in in the sense that um he 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 knew which strings to pull if you like politically um in terms of his messages about breaking the union for example uh, would 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 be one of them um so in that sense he was he, he was a, he was a good thing obviously yeah. well, on the other hand um it does appear that uh, he took the advice of the wrong uh, officers. You know, he had a, he had a group of officers, um, military officers, advising him on on the campaign, and he tended um, to side with 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 with, with some Irish um, officers um, who appear to have been less prudent um, than some of the others who were urging more caution uh, about, the, the, you know, the campaigning, about where to where to fight the battles and so on and so forth. Um, so, in that sense, his judgment was probably not the best.
3: That was Christopher Whatley talking to Charlotte Hodgman. You can read more from them in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned earlier, is currently on sale. And just before we go... We're currently running a survey to find out what you think about this podcast and whether there are any aspects that we could improve. We'd very much appreciate your feedback, so if you do have a couple of minutes to spare, please visit historyextra.com forward slash pod survey. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do please listen in next time when we'll be broadcasting a lecture from our 2014 History Weekend. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at HistoryExtra.com. And we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website HistoryExtra.com, where you will find history quizzes galleries, articles and more. Plus it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.